Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, I talk with Charles Marone. Charles is a professional engineer licensed in the state of Minnesota and a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners. And Chuck and I talk about the characteristic strong towns and how civil engineers will play a role in developing strong towns in the future. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you why Chuck's an expert in this field. He's got a very impressive resume. But what I want to touch on here is this episode was a very interesting episode from my perspective as the host, and I think it will be for you as well, because many of our listeners are civil engineers who are in the consulting field, potentially, or they could be in public agencies. But most of our listeners would probably say, if you ask them, that infrastructure projects are great. They're great for the community, for society, because they're improving infrastructure, making places safer, bring jobs and economic benefits to the community. Of course, for civil engineering companies, they're bringing revenue, right? Which is a big aspect of growing a company. However, Chuck has a little bit of a different view on this. He talks about how many infrastructure projects are not great because they create an expense for these communities and bring no revenue. And it causes many of our towns to go underwater. And that's certainly not creating strong towns. So it's a very, very interesting perspective. And I think it might make all of us as civil engineers think a little bit differently about how we can build strong towns. Now, before we bring that civil engineering conversation of the week to you, I want to take a moment to give you a message from our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, Make sure to listen to my announcement a little later on in the episode. All right, now I'd like to introduce today's guest for our civil engineering conversation, just so you get to know a little bit more about him before we dive into what was a very interesting conversation. Charles Marone, known as Chuck to friends and colleagues, is the founder and president of Strong Towns. Chuck has a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from the University of Minnesota's Institute of Technology and a master's in urban and regional planning from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute. Marone is the author of Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, Volume 1 and Volume 2, as well as a world-class transportation system. He hosts the Strong Towns podcast and is a primary writer for Strong Towns web content. He has presented Strong Towns concepts in hundreds of cities and towns across North America. Chuck grew up on a small farm in central Minnesota, the oldest of three sons of two elementary school teachers. He joined the Minnesota National Guard on his 17th birthday during his junior year of high school and served for nine years. In addition to being passionate about building a stronger America, he loves playing music, is an obsessive reader, and religiously follows his favorite team, the Minnesota Twins. Chuck and his wife live with their two daughters and two Samoyeds in their hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota. It's time to jump in today's civil engineering conversation with Chuck Marone of Strong Towns. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome 
our guest for this episode, Chuck Marone from Strong Towns. Chuck, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to do this. As you heard, Chuck, by degree, is a civil engineer, and he's now involved in Strong Towns. It's a nonprofit organization, and I'll let him talk a little bit more about the details of it, but we're going to really talk in this episode about what makes up a strong town. I mean, as civil engineers, we're constantly working on things that are related to really how a town works. I mean, whether it's water, roadways, all different kinds of systems. And Chuck's website, which we're going to link to, has some really amazing content on how we can build strong towns. So Chuck, why don't you just start by introducing what you do and and kind of how it came about? I run a website that is a digital media company. We're sharing a message and we're like digital evangelists. I travel around the country and talk to people about how to build strong towns. It really came about because I was working with cities here in my home state of Minnesota, doing engineering projects, doing planning work. And I came to the realization that the stuff I was doing was actually making the cities poorer. I was actually thought that I was helping. And what I was doing was kind of buying people time. The quintessential project that was kind of an eye-opener for me, and and I won't say it was a moment, it was more of a transition. I worked for the city where we placing a pipe underneath the highway. The pipe was 300 foot of leaking pipe and the water was flowing out to their wastewater treatment ponds and threatening to overflow them. And you were going to have an environmental catastrophe where this wastewater was going to flow into the river. I went out and figured out it was this 300 feet of pipe. And this was in the 90s. It was before directional boring was what it is today. And so we were actually going to have to trench this highway, which was really, really expensive. And I went to this small town and I told them, you know, here's the project, here's the cost. And they didn't have the money to do it. I went to the grant agencies that uh, my company was used to working with and, and that worked in cities of this size. And they all said, you know, Chuck, this is a nice little project, but it sounds a lot like maintenance. We don't do maintenance. That's a city responsibility. This project was $300,000. This city's annual budget was around 100000 They had no money and no capacity to do this. So what did I do? I went out and I figured out that, uh, okay, they fund expansion. They don't fund maintenance. Let's make an expansion project. And uh, I figured out where the poorest people in town were. We ran two miles of pipe to hook them all up. We doubled the size of their wastewater treatment ponds, put in a huge lift station, and uh, fixed that 300 feet of pipe while we were at it. It wound up to be a a $2.6 million project. But when I went back to the grant agencies, they said, wow, this is perfect. You're serving poor underserviced people. You're fixing a pending environmental catastrophe. You've got jobs. You're creating room for growth. It met every checkbox on the list, and we were the number one ranked project on the funding list for that year. The city got funded almost the entire project. They did have a $130,000 loan they had to do, but it was financed for them by the USDA over 40 years at like submarket interest rates at a payment they could handle, right? We got a payment plan for you. I realized that what I had done and understand the city was ecstatic with me. They had this horrible problem. They were getting fined because of it and I solved it. They actually had a Chuck Marone day in this little town. I got a nice big bonus from my firm that I work for. They started calling me the rainmaker. Nothing was going to happen in this little town, and I went up and made something happen. The grant agencies were happy. Everybody was thrilled with me. I took a city that had more pipe than they had money to maintain, 
And to solve that problem, I doubled the amount of pipe they had. To me, that is what our, in many ways, our profession has become. We're really good at solving problems, but we have a very limited toolbox. I started thinking about some of the stuff that he just mentioned in that we build these elaborate projects oftentimes to solve these quote unquote problems. But then what happens is in the moment, everyone's very happy. But in the long term, when it comes to maintenance and costs, it's not always a good thing. I remember so many times as a young engineer being invited because I could speak and I was, you know, <laughs> I just said I could speak. That puts me in like the upper 20 percent of my colleagues sometimes. I could communicate ideas to people. And so I would get invited to be part of our interviewing committees. And I would sit in these interviews and, you know, sometimes it was a small project, sometimes it was big projects, sometimes it was a part of a, a bigger team. You would get in there and my impression before I did some of these was that they're gonna ask us technical questions. What would you do on this curve? What would you do with this pipe? Have you sized this kind of pump before? We'd be prepared to answer technical questions. No. Every interview was the same. What is your history with getting grant money? What is your history with working with these financing people? And uh, how well do you work with the public? And that was basically it. Like, can you get money and can you communicate with people? That's all they cared about. Over time, it just occurred to me that what we were was like just a delivery system. We were going out and getting money and building projects. And that was like the beginning and end of the conversation. We knew there was maintenance that went along with this stuff. That was not our deal. That was like the local maintenance guy's deal. We knew there were costs long-term associated with this, but they had a planner and economic development people and they were going to get growth. Our job became like delivering the infrastructure. And like many firms, we were really good at it. So Chuck, and you've already given some of the answer to this question, but the underlying question I think for you, or the big question is, why are so many cities and towns across North America going broke? I mean, you've just described part of it, but what is the reason? I think there's a, there's a complex bunch of reasons, but let me give you kind of the strong towns take. When you take a city and you can go back to the Great Depression and look at the way that our cities were built then, you take cities that were, in a sense, compact, kind of organically built places, places that were built up kind of slowly and incrementally over time. And you take that after World War II and you take that exact same population and you spread them out over two times, five times, 10 times, 50 times the area. And you add all the road and the sidewalk and the pipe. What you find is that in a very short term, you can create a lot of growth. And we did. The 50s and the 60s, we nostalgize as being this time when we had huge amounts of growth. The 70s and 80s, you can see this transition from growing to taking on debt in order to grow. When we build new stuff, you can create a lot of growth very quickly. What you also create is a corresponding set of obligations. We will plow the snow off that road. We will mow the ditches. We will go out and fix the cracks in that pavement. We will go out and repair that sidewalk. We will replace that pipe. When you start to add up those obligations, what you find is that the land use pattern, the stuff we actually build after the pipe and the road goes in, does not generate enough wealth and doesn't hold its value long enough to actually pay to go back and fix this stuff over and over and over. And so what happens is that we get in these financial binds at a city level, we start taking on debt and we start chasing more growth because more growth gives us cash and the cash we can use to make good on all of our other promises. 
And in a sense, our development pattern has become a financial Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme without the nefarious intent. I don't think there's anyone here trying to exploit people. I certainly wasn't in the project that I was doing. I thought I was building great stuff. But you wind up with this thing where our cities are obsessed with growth, but really have no mechanism to care of everything because the land use pattern, the big box stores, the cul-de-sacs, the frontage roads, none of this stuff generates enough cash flow, enough wealth to actually go back and fix the stuff. And that's the fundamental problem. We see our cities getting underwater, really, in their obligations and uh, just continuing, in a sense, to add to that problem over time. It's interesting because I think if you looked on the surface quickly and said, oh, we're building new infrastructure, new jobs, like you said earlier, Chuck, it looks, quote unquote, good. But if you think about it practically, like when you keep piling new and more stuff onto something, eventually something bad is going to happen. And I think in this case, the bad part is really comes a lot into the financial side of things. Like you said, it's just that these aren't revenue generating projects per se, but they require a lot of expense and a lot of maintenance. And so it does make sense that that's a problem. So before we get into some ideas for building strong towns, some things we can do and some things you guys are striving to do to help towns, I want to read something from your website, which I think is really applicable to our audience. And it says, strong towns will never produce a street design guide for engineers. We won't tell you an ideal population density per acre, and we aren't available for consultancy requests. We're a nonprofit that's doing something bigger than just helping one town or country. Easy one-size-fits-all solutions from the top down are what got American towns into the mess they're in. We want to bring you something better. So what is something better, Chuck? At the end of the day, when we look back at cities that were strong and resilient, they were built slowly and incrementally over time. Building incrementally allows you to try things out and, and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and adapt in a very local way. After World War II, the economists at the time were freaked out that without the war spending, we were just going to go right back into depression. In fact, I think it was logical at the time. You had gone through 10 years, you know, a decade of really hard times. Nothing had changed besides this war. What was going to keep us from sliding right back to where we were when all those GIs came home? Well, what happened was we built America. We built the suburban America. We went out and started building highways and housing subdivisions and strip malls. We started selling dishwashers and refrigerators, encyclopedias and Amway. I mean, the, this whole like ecosystem of building new stuff evolved. And the way we did this at scale was we standardized everything. We took and put together code books. Here's how you build a pipe. Here's how you build a road. Here's how you do it to this standard. And it became very easy to, in a sense, roll out in a cookie cutter kind of way over and over and over again, this pattern. We saw this leading up to the 2008 housing bubble, where the assumption in the financial markets was that nothing was correlated. California could fail, but that wouldn't mean that Florida would fail. It wouldn't mean that Minnesota would fail. These places are all uncorrelated. And what we actually discovered in 2008 was that they're highly correlated because the things we build in California are exactly like what we're building in Texas and Florida and Maine and Minnesota and Washington. They're all the same. What we actually have to do now is step back and kind of put that toolbox to the side and understand that cities are very complex, messy places. Old lady up the street who the house just went into probate 
is going to have a much different profile of what's going to happen on that site than the place, you know, over here that's owned by the speculator. That's going to be way different than the young couple that just bought the duplex across the street and wants to rent out one of the units. What we find is that today, the challenges we face are fine-grained and very hyper-local. And as engineers, that means we're going to have to develop a different set of understandings about how our streets and blocks and neighborhoods work if we want to start to wring more value out of them. And really, when you're talking about a lack of financial productivity, which is our core problem, what we have to do is wring more value out of our current investments. We have to take that block of street we've got that we don't know how to pay for it. And without adding a bunch more cost, we have to double, triple, quadruple the wealth that street creates. And that's a different challenge than just building more. Wow, that's interesting. So what you're doing then is there's not not a town per se calling you and saying, Chuck, you got to help our town become better financially. What you're doing is you're trying to create media that will educate these towns on a larger scale going forward. Is that right? We've got towns all the time that call us and wants to do that. We've kind of got a focus and our focus is we're trying to have this broader conversation. I want people to understand what's going on. Understand that, you know, building more of this stuff is just bankrupting us. Once you realize that, I think you can step back and see that there's no like easy answer to this set of predicaments we face. There's no like silver bullet. There's no zoning code we can pass. There's no street standard. We are in a completely new place and we're going to have to figure this out kind of block by block. What I want is I want to make more people aware of what's actually going on. We don't have a taxing and spending problem. We don't have a lack of funding problem. You hear the American Society of Civil Engineers saying, you know, we need to spend trillions more. No, that would be a disaster. We have built stuff that is financially unproductive. It costs more to build and maintain than it produces in wealth. And that means that your cities are underwater financially. That can't be solved by building more. It can only get worse. So we actually have to step back and figure out how do we deal with this? And I think engineers are a huge part of the solution to that. But the first thing they have to do is recognize the problem. I'm more trying to help people recognize the problem and then embrace the idea that we need to try a bunch of small things to figure out what's going to work in this new world. If you're building something that costs money but doesn't generate revenue, then it's obviously you're going underwater. But then when you hear everybody on TV and it's like, okay, we got to build jobs, infrastructure, jobs, invest more money, spend trillions of dollars. So it's like when you say it, everyone's like, okay, it makes sense. But you have to really think about it and you have to look at the bigger picture, which I think people don't do. They just think about the immediate, where, how are we going to get jobs? How are we going to get this? And I think that that's a big part of the I issue. I think it's important. And I'm going to defend us to a degree, or at least give us an excuse here. We just got done with a crazy election cycle, which regardless of who you voted for, it was kind of nutty. I look at our last presidential election and I saw two 70-year-olds describing the best time in their lives, the 50s and the 60s, and how they were going to kind of bring us back to that. If you talk to economists, you can go to someone like a social critic like Tom Friedman, who wrote a book called That Used to Be Us. They point to this time in the 50s and 60s and they say, look, we were building infrastructure. We were building America. We were investing in our future. And if we could just do that again, and it's such a compelling narrative because we look back with nostalgia at this, 
What was actually happening is that we were making these investments. They were producing growth. We were seeing things visually looking better. But what we weren't doing is adding up those liabilities. How much is this going to cost to fix? How much is it going to cost to maintain? Do we produce enough wealth with it to actually do those things? And because infrastructure doesn't fail in a year or two, it fails in 25, 30 years. You have this generational problem where you, for 25, 30 years, this was great. And it was only like in the mid 70s, early 80s that those bills started to come due. And you can see our economy start to choke on them. About that time, we made this dramatic switch from paying things with cash and taxes to starting to use leverage. And you can see our debt levels just skyrocket through the 80s, through the 90s, and, and up to today. I think that because of the long timeframes involved in infrastructure, we just, there was never an incentive to stop and ask these tough questions. And now that we're here, you know, now that it's like overwhelming, every city in the country has this massive backlog of stuff with no idea how they're going to pay for it. I feel like it's incumbent on us as engineers to branch out beyond building and start to talk to the financial people, start to talk to the planning people and start to piece this all together because we're the ones with the skills to do that. I want to go a little deeper on the role that civil engineers are going to play in helping to create stronger towns. But before I do that, I know that there's no one size fits all, like you said, but I've heard you in some other interviews mention some things that you've seen in towns that do make town stronger in the sense of happier residents. Simple things like walking paths. Again, I understand that disclaimer to everyone that these not a one size fits all, but what are some things that you've seen, Chuck, in your travels that don't necessarily take millions or trillions of dollars that have made stronger towns? I don't think we even need the disclaimer. I'm happy to say these as like universal truths. What we need to do is actually get fine grained in our neighborhoods. If you think of that block I laid out earlier where you don't have enough tax base on that block to actually afford to maintain the infrastructure that makes that block possible. You have two solutions to that problem. Either A, you abandon the infrastructure, which is not cool, or B, you actually make that block more wealthy, more valuable. And what does that actually mean? It means the single family home needs to become a duplex. The strip mall needs a second story. The parking lot needs to be converted into buildings. Once you start going down this path, what you realize is that our cities need to become tighter and more fine-grained. Things like, can someone walk across the street becomes a really big deal. And when you start to get to that fine grain, what you find out is that putting in sidewalks, planting street trees, putting in crosswalks, narrowing up lanes, slowing down traffic, these things become, from a, an execution standpoint, really cheap to do but from a return on investment standpoint, incredibly high. We can spend a dollar doing those kind of things and get multiple dollars back. Here's the tough thing. Show me the business model that allows an engineering firm to make money doing that kind of stuff. That's the hard one. And there's firms around the country working on that, like trying to figure that one out. But we've become very used to the big project and the fee structure along with that and how that all rolls out and we can employ a lot of people and we can deliver that. It's a much different game to go to a town and say, you know, let's look at this neighborhood and figure out where we put in a bike lane and where we put in a crosswalk. We're going to spend $50,000 in this neighborhood. We're going to have another $50,000 in fees. That's a weird ratio for us as engineers because we're used to 7 8% of construction costs being the fee schedule. 
the type of stuff we're doing now is very different. And I, I think we're going to have to adapt our models to work at that fine, fine grain. We have a lot of civil engineers that listen to this show, Chuck. And after what we've been talking about for the last 20, 25 minutes, they may be thinking right now, like, okay, so my career, what I do now is effectively putting towns underwater on a day-to-day basis. So just as a starting point for someone thinking about what we just talked about, what are some things, and I understand this is not going to happen overnight. There's lots of stuff to be done. Like you said, there's models that have to change. There's paradigms that have to shift, but what can civil engineers start to do at least to think about how they can address this problem in civil engineering? I'll tell you what I did, and I'm not suggesting this is the right mix for everybody, but I had this existential problem where I came to a realization that where I thought I was doing good, and I, at the end of the day, came to a realization that I was actually doing harm. I did a couple of things. First of all, I immersed myself in the language of finance because I didn't understand it. And I had engineering economics. I understood how to do present value analyses. I understood how to, in the language I would use today, compare one bad project to another bad project and decide which one was the least bad. I think we have to actually learn the language of community finance and understand not necessarily how for example, being trapped in congestion, converting that into dollars and comparing that to project costs, but actually saying, okay, if we spend a dollar on this, where is that dollar going to come from and what wealth is that going to create? In some ways, it's an easier math problem, but it's a different math problem than we use today. I think we have a responsibility to do it because the finance people are never going to understand engineering, but we can understand finance. I think the other part, and you introduced me as an engineer, I am. I also went back to school and got a master's degree in planning. I'm not going to recommend that for everybody, but I do think understanding land use and the planning profession and the way buildings are laid out, the way they affront the street, the way they interrelate with each other, what makes something productive, what makes something endure and last as opposed to be kind of a short-term transient thing. These are all things that if we're not going to get a master's degree, which don't do it, I don't become AICP. I think it's a waste of time for most engineers. But I think grasping that part of it, which is not really hard to do, you just have to make the effort to do it, I think is a great next step. Go read the book Suburban Nation, and it will open your eyes to a whole conversation that the playing profession is having that uh, is just elusive for engineers, but I think critical for our future. I think that's a great way to start because you need to learn, like Chuck's saying, you got to get educated on the situation, on what's going on out there before you can even attempt to think about how to approach it and how to change either your services or the way you approach projects. And I think for me personally, just having this conversation with Chuck and having a civil engineering background, one of the things that I would think about is what is the long-term effects for my clients of the projects that we're helping them with now? Maybe starting to think a little bit more along the lines of longer-term effects, because I think that that's something that as a civil engineer, not that it's your fault, but you're probably not doing per se, financially, I should say. Often your clients don't want to hear it. And that's the truth. That makes it even harder. <laughs> right. I say this to groups of engineers when I'm fortunate enough to speak in front of them. There's a lot of clients who are not going to care. They want to build what they want to build. And they don't want you telling them that this doesn't make financial sense. 
And I get that. And I'm not suggesting that as a profession, we die on our swords, you know, for the righteous cause. But I am telling you that there's this guy out there. His name's Chuck Marone. He's running an organization called Strong Towns. He is out trying to raise awareness in this. And I think that a lot more public officials, well, I know a lot more public officials are starting to ask these questions. And if you can be the engineering firm that stands up and is prepared to answer them and actually, you know, help build strong towns, I'm trying to build a market for you. I'm trying to make you like the market changer, the one that everybody wants to hire. That's my role here is to change the preferences in the marketplace so that our local officials, our local staff, our residents are rejecting the big project silver bullet solution and demanding the small incremental stuff. The places that can provide it, I hope I can get them lots and lots of work. All right. So with that, Chuck, are you good with uh, sticking around here for a few minutes and going into our hot seat segment where we ask you a few professional development related questions? I'd love to. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. All right. Hang on. We'll be back in a minute with our CE hot seat segment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment of this episode where I'm going to pepper Chuck with some questions related to his personal development and what's been a very interesting career. But before I do that, I'd like to just recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppi2pass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass, forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code PREP and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. I use PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, Chuck, welcome to the CE Hot Seat. You ready to go? Let's do it. All right, first question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or lunchtime routine, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being a successful professional? I read every day. I think maybe that's the one that I consistently do. I try to read an hour or so a day. People exercise, I read. And uh, I try to exercise too, but if I had to choose between the two, it would be reading. I read in the morning and I read in the evening. I kind of have set times where I sit down and actually say, I'm going to read. And uh, I kind of put that time aside and that's what I do. Now, let me ask you one question on that because something I've been thinking about a lot myself. When you're reading at these times, you obviously, you have a specific book you're reading. Is the book that you're reading at the time selected because of something you're working on? 
do you use any kind of process for selecting what to read? I just follow my passion. I can't tell you the last time I read a planning or an engineering book. It's been years. I've been really deep into behavioral economics recently and human psychology, actually. I get a question and then I try to answer it. I'm kind of a didactic person in that sense. I would start with whatever you're interested in and then chase that. I have a philosophy that I came up with. I do about 60 books a year. I'm in my mid 40s right now. I sat down and figured out a few years ago that I'm going to be able to read about 2000 books in the rest of my life. That's the library that I'm going to be able to put in my brain. So when I get going, if I'm a couple chapters into a book and it's not doing it for me, I just set aside. I used to feel this obligation when I started something to give the author like, I'll finish this. And now I don't. Now I just follow like, okay, this book is not getting me what I want next. And so, yeah, I burned through them. All right. So the next question, the question that I typically ask is what is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional or personal development? But what I might modify it is for you is maybe a book or some books that you could recommend to civil engineers to start to think about some of the things that we talked about today. I mentioned Suburban Nation, and I think that that's a fantastic eye-opener for people, particularly people who have gotten numb to our current development pattern. It will help you see it differently and, and think about it differently. I have to recommend, and I can't recommend strongly enough, the work of Nassim Taleb. If you're going to read one of his books, read Anti-Fragile. But he wrote a book called Fooled by Randomness and another one called The Black Swan. And I, I think the three of them together are just essential reads. They explain how to work in a world that we don't understand. And when we look at cities, especially as engineers, we often are mistaken in thinking that cities are, to use his words, like a washing machine. There's something that are kind of mechanical that we can go in and, and just tinker with and fix. And they're not. They're complex adaptive systems. They change in ways that are not really predictable or able to be projected. And I think the anti-fragile will give you, and the black swan in particular, will give you a, a healthy respect for that. We all need every profession. That's great. I've heard a ton of good things about those books. So we'll link up to those in our show notes. All right. So I have one last question for you, Chuck, which we call the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a, a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, and you had to give him or her career advice in that short span of time, what would it be? I think you need to learn to be able to speak to people. And beyond that, I think writing, those have been the two things that have liberated me, but I'm not even using me as like a case study. I had a lot of people back when I worked at the engineering firm who went through the, what's the speaker series where you go early in the morning and you Toastmasters. You ever heard of this Toastmasters? Toastmasters. Yeah, of course. Yep. A lot of these guys were very, like they went into engineering because they didn't like public speaking. They liked math. They liked working with numbers. They liked working with figures. And they found out that to be able to communicate ideas, you actually had to be able to communicate ideas. I saw people make huge progress in Toastmasters and really become very effective at their careers by just being able to elevate the way they were able to communicate in verbal form and written form. That would be my elevator advice for people. Make sure you can communicate ideas. So Chuck, where can our listeners kind of keep up with you and what you're doing and learn about Strong Towns? Strongtowns.org is our website. We publish three, four articles a day. It's more than you're going to be able to read. Pick what you can and, you know, hang out. We've got a Slack channel. 
You can get that through our website too. We're also on all the social media. We do a podcast, the Strong Towns podcast. You can get that right from iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Come and, and be part of our conversation. We need more engineers in our conversation because it, it helps balance things out really. I really appreciate the value of PE's add to us and, and I hope reciprocate with that. That's great. We thank Chuck so much for coming on and getting us to think about this topic. Remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for our Strong Towns episode. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that Chuck mentioned during the episode. You can leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and we will respond if you leave us one. So until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.